0: So could you start by telling us a little bit about how you came to write this project?
1: Yeah, so I, I think really when I look back it really all began as an um, undergrad student in uh, at Tel Aviv University where I did a double major in history and in economics. And the economics at Tel Aviv University I think is even more mathematical, more quantitative, even than I think in your standard American university. So really all I was doing uh, for three years was mostly just, you know, differential calculus, you know, just a lot of math, and it was just incredible to me how, how little meat there was on this bone, but on the other hand, how powerful to the students around me, and also to me, um, this kind of, this quantitative way of thinking, kind of uh, the, the kind of the power that it had over people, and how it kind of changed, you know, the way we began to think about things. Uh, I even remember at the time, there was this economic professor, who did an experiment in our department where he took some philosophy students and some economics students and he asked them, he gave them like a kind of made up question about you're the head of a factory and things are going like this and you need to fire people, what do you do? And the philosophy students, of course, like hardly fired anyone. And the economic students, they just turned it into a math problem. They maximize the equation, and it turns out that the last person they fired, uh, they fired because of a dollar. Basically, they saved a dollar, and and that's kind of like I think, in many ways, uh, the way I really, really got into this project is just the power of a quantifying things. But then, more specifically, what really happens when we uh, price things? Like, what's the cost of? <laughs> we're already in the language talking about it, but like, what what really happens? What How does it change our worldview when we begin to evaluate things only through money? Uh, And then I would cross over from the economics department to the history department, where I studied um, with great teachers, among them Michael Zakim, who's a historian of capitalism. And there, of course, I was getting a completely different, you know, education into uh, 19th century capitalism. And it just, you know, things began to click for me. I began to see, you know, these connections. And so I, when I went to Harvard in 2008, this was pre-crisis, pretty much. I mean, the crisis kind of exploded in my first year of grad school. And I wanted to write about the history of capitalism and economic thought and the rise of GDP and the power of these numbers and where they came from. And uh, I remember like uh, Sven Beckert, who was my advisor, he was like, uh, wow, I don't think anyone's doing this. Or in general, most people weren't doing history of capitalism then. Of course, like two years later, after the crisis, it kind of exploded. So, you know, again, a lot of times it's about being at the right place at the right time, so I really got on the ground floor in that sense. But for me, yeah, for me, like, the driving force of this project has always been, you know, I guess you would say political, ideological. Uh, it, it definitely didn't emerge as some, you know, like, oh, I'm curious, you know, to tell a story about so-and-so. It was definitely kind of driven more by uh, some kind of burning, I guess, uh Issues I had with the rise of neoliberalism in Israel, I guess, and in the United States as well, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's funny because in, in listening to you talk, it also sounds like it's about um, kind of capital P politics, but also about the politics of of disciplinarity and and the kinds of questions that people ask um, whether they have kind of their their economics hat on or their history hat on or or for someone like you who's kind of in between these questions. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how how you came to to care about these questions in the context of of being a historian?
1: Yeah, no it's true. So um, I think one of the things that's so uh, refreshing about you know studying economic thought and economics in general is how little the economists who who write about things things, how little they've like historicized or even have like you know an historical way of thinking. I mean they're usually creating these very naturalized models um so so really is quite fun to be an historian and kind of jump in uh into these conversations because you really are just seeing them come from a completely different viewpoint and I think that leads to like a very rich and and fulfilling uh uh experience and it also I think helps uh uh under helps you understand kind of like the the stakes of the the issue even more than 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 I think you would just by kind of thinking about it from, you know, the economics kind of point of view, because you can be, you know, critical of things like GDP from a strictly economics point of view, but it's different. Um, so to give you an example, um, when I was writing my book or I think actually when I was writing my dissertation, uh, so this is after the crisis. So it definitely became like, you know, a hot topic to criticize GDP amongst economists. This was definitely something that they had become aware of. And, um, and Sarkozy, uh, the president of France, he had this commission, and Stiglitz and uh, Amatya Sen, they all wrote this really interesting short little book about, you know, uh, GDP. And and the title of the book was Mismeasuring Our Lives. And and as you can tell from the title, really the dominant narrative of this book was, um, we made a mistake, guys, okay? We, 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 we shouldn't be using these figures. Uh, and I read this book, and this was when I was already deep into, like, you know, 18th and 19th century economic thought and I was like this wasn't a mistake I mean this isn't just something that you know happened to happen where you know the technocrats crunched the numbers wrong or they created categories that were just uh oh boy we shouldn't have done that that was a mistake I mean no the the rise of GDP as I argue in my book was you know like not at all a coincidence not at all a mistake it's it's uh, directly linked uh, to the way that you know capital works and how investors view the world. So I think for me, that's one of the biggest differences. I think economists, and I would even go as far to say some liberal historians, they'll often kind of the way they'll view these issues of quantification are, I wouldn't say completely dep- depoliticized, they're not, but they're often, you know very technical. So, you know, oh, they made a mistake here or they weren't thinking about this or they didn't realize that. Whereas what I try to do in the book in general when I historicize economics is try to first just go with the very basic categories that people are using to, like, study things. And to me, in many ways, we really need to kind of analyze and critique and examine these basic categories, like, for instance, using units of money to measure, you know, social value. And from there, you can really kind of see uh, where these ideas come from and how it's much more than just, you know, some technocratic mistake or some expert sitting somewhere who built this model instead of that model. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about some of those, those people then that you, that you mentioned, because I'm fascinated by how a book like yours comes about at, at the place where a bunch of different kinds of archives and actors meet because you've mentioned a couple of times the fact that you work or you started working at least primarily on economic thought. Um, and yet your book is really peopled by uh, businessmen and enslaved people and uh, factory workers and policymakers, as well as um, kind of these, these figures from, from 19th and 20th century economic thinking, uh, so to speak. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to that cast of characters and what that means to you to kind of write economic thought across uh, what some might call policy, what some people might call politics, social upheaval, all of these other kinds of questions?
1: Yeah, no, so you're exactly right. I think in, in most, usually economic thought, and it's changing now, but the history of economic thought was pretty much the history of professional economists. Uh, it was, you know, let's uh, look what uh, Irving Fisher said, and let's look what Keynes said, and, and it really was kind of dominated by that view. And, and one of the things that I, that I try to argue in the book is that, you know, you don't have to be a, have a PhD in economics uh, to, to have economic thought. Certainly not. We all have economic thoughts. And the people that I really like uh, to study the most are the people who didn't just think But they actually went into the world and then did things and changed things. So you mentioned businessmen. So whether it's someone like Alexander Hamilton, obviously, who's a big part of my earlier chapters, or or, um, William Petty, or later, we get people like Freeman Hunt, who he finds the first kind of major financial magazine in America in the mid-19th century, I really really like people who, um, on one hand, they definitely are thinking about the economy in very certain ways. They're, in our case, you know, uh, quantifying and the world in a very certain way. They're envisioning it as a capitalized investment. But on the other hand, they're not just writing textbooks, uh, although that's important too. Uh, but they're also really, you know, uh, they're writing policy. They're writing popular magazines. They're uh, – Or if they're, you know, slaveholders, maybe, then they're also senators who are giving speeches like cotton is king. And then they're, you know, using all these statistics to show why uh, we need to uh, continue to to enslave African-Americans in the South. So definitely one of the kind of ways that I work as a historian is I kind of always look for those people who who are kind of doing both. Um, And that's when I really know where I've kind of hit something. Uh, That's why for someone like Irving Fisher in my last chapter, if Irving Fisher was had only been this kind of brilliant neoclassical economist, the finder, founder of modern economic thought, I don't know if I would have written about him. What really got me into Fisher, and you can tell from like the beginning of that chapter, it's clear, is that he was also a progressive reformer. He, uh, he wanted to change the world. He wanted to, you know, to have prohibition and, and universal healthcare, and he and it was that that really kind of got me excited, because that's where you really see, and again, this is about the broader kind of issue of the book, how economic thought kind of leaves just the realm of, you know, academia, or it leaves the realm of the business world, and it really seeps into kind of everyday life, everyday culture. And in this sense, in some ways, you could even say that there are moments where I feel like I'm really more of a cultural historian than I am just like a strictly intellectual historian, although I, I don't really know the difference between the two, but I guess I feel like one of the differences would be that um, I don't usually interrogate ideas um, just kind of like on their philosophical values, but I really kind of show, try to show it's hard sometimes how they then, you know, circulated and and changed the world around it.
0: And I guess that has implications as well for how you're reading some of the texts that you're looking at or the kinds of archives that you're um, embedding your argument in. Could you tell us about how you came to find? the sources that you're looking at and how you're reading them because especially if you're interested in the relationship between ideas and culture or ideas in motion um, or ideas as they have to be kind of read out by the historian out of sets of actions it seems to me like the everyday practice of reading your sources as somebody at this this intersection between intellectual history and something else it, it that strikes me that that's also you know a, a methodological question for you yeah
1: Yeah, so I can give you an example, for instance, in Hamilton. So I I guess two things. So first thing, you know, you read so much about Hamilton, and I'm sure this is going to change now, but the thing that blew me away when I was reading about Alexander Hamilton is that, first of all, like the whole first part of his life in the Caribbean, and this is ironic because you actually see this, I think, also in the play, uh, that's really, you know, on one hand, that's kind of used as this like dramatic uh, uh, staging of this, you know, brilliant uh, orphan child who comes out of nowhere, but then it like completely disappears. Peers. And no one actually begins to think, wait, how did growing up on this, you know, uh, giant capitalized investment where 94% of the people around him were enslaved, how did that, like, you know, shape his worldview? And it's incredible how, like, very few people who have studied Hamilton have actually bothered to ask that question. So I think for me, first of all, is that I always try to look at these people and kind of where they grew up, how are they, where did these ideas come from, that kind of thing. And then the other thing is I really do try to find, like, you know, like these little connections. So to continue with the Hamilton example... When I really got excited about Hamilton was when I found um, in his archive, he was, uh, had this uh, kind of book that he was carrying, a notebook that he was carrying around during the war, and that was supposed to, where he was supposed to, he was a captain, and he was supposed to kind of keep track there of the artillery and of the soldiers, but like halfway through he begins to, it's just all these notes about economic statistics that he's right, uh, kind of jotting down, and it turns out he's summarizing this stuff. Uh, from this 18th century uh, dictionary of commerce that was written by this British fellow who was actually very involved in the slave trade. And that guy is quoting William Petty. And and so that's kind of really uh, when I I, like, you know, that I've hit something that's interesting is when you can kind of begin to trace the web's of how these ideas are flowing uh, between people's lives and between people's like you know different uh, uh, networks, I guess you can say, and because then, then you really see you know like I said before how the ideas come alive, how they're kind of really moving around. People are actually you know talking about this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. That that makes a lot of sense, especially as you were telling us how you got into this um, sort of line of of question. Uh, it's really at the moment a when the financial crisis is taking root in the ways in which people's everyday lives were affected. And secondly, you know, not so coincidentally at the moment in which the history of capitalism, the way that we understand it now, um, in the discipline is taking off as something that people are self-consciously, uh, studying as an object. And secondly, yeah. tying explicitly to that moment of crisis, um, in, in 2008, I guess, can, can you tell us more about, the relationship between your work and your story and something like the study of neoliberalism or the study of capitalism, A, do those words mean something particular and distinct to you? And B, is that a conversation that you're invested in continuing now that we're, you know, over 10 years out or, or does that conversation look different to you? now? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, I'll start with the end. I'll begin with the end with about how conversations change. Because so when I started writing this book, and like you're saying, 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, for me, you know, I was really my goal, I guess you could say, and, and it was to really challenge the hegemony of like the neoliberal technocrat, who in many ways I would say dominated the Democratic Party uh, at the time uh, and the Obama administration, uh, even more in many ways than it did the Republican administration. I mean, I felt that really, you know, the people who were really kind of uh, controlling uh kind of like the american uh, uh uh economy and the way people thought about the economy uh were oftentimes it was the timothy geithners it was the larry Summerses of the world it was it was these professional economists um and so not not that i have any uh uh for the conservatives but i was really kind of interested in kind of like these liberal technocrats and how they build legitimacy and that's kind of you know a big part of uh, the story of my uh of my book is, you know, how these kind of statistics create this new kind of expertise and this new kind of power and this kind of imagining the world. Uh, but by the time the book came out in 2017, uh, Donald Trump had been elected president. And, you know, when that happened, I, like besides the fact that, you know, I was very sad that Donald Trump had been elected president uh, after that initial wave had passed. I was also, you know, beginning to think, boy, my book might be completely irrelevant now because, you know, this was really for the Hillary Clinton types uh, more uh than for the donald trump types um, but i i think at the end you know a lesson you can learn here is that conversations don't uh change that quickly because you know within a year or two i kind of became amazed at how donald trump actually uses a lot of these economic indicators in his tweets uh, almost as much as you know uh, kind of like the liberal types though so i guess you know in some ways he oftentimes also sounds like a bloomberg console um so 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 but definitely like that 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 can have an effect on your work uh you know how the conversations change and and actually you know i'll even say that i think you know the most successful books uh, and the ones that really kind of take off uh, are definitely the ones that you know they they really nail their timing (laughs) because so often i think the books that we start writing uh 10 years uh before or eight years before (laughs) eight years i think is generous um are you know the, the world is going to be a very different t- place by the time your book comes out. But on the other hand, I think in the long run, uh, you should definitely, you know, not worry about that kind of thing. Because in the long run, you know, people are, are going to look back and the conversation doesn't change, you know, that quickly. Uh, so that's as far as like, you know, changing conversations. Uh, could you remind me what was the beginning of the question? Because I remember it was good, but I am I, I, blanking now.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I was asking you about the relationship between... Being interested in precisely the question that you're interested in, which is, you know, the pricing of progress and situating it inside what at the time was a history of capitalism and continues to be sort of a coherent subfield in in the study of the 19th and 20th century. Um, yeah. And the relationship between that and conversations about neoliberalism. Do you, are you situated uh-huh. in particular, in a particular place there? Um
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so so first of all, I'll start with the, the history of capitalism. Yeah, so it was just taking off kind of when I was uh, working on this. And I think, you know, for the first few years, the history of capitalism in many ways was shorthand for, you know, the capitalism and slavery field. And, and I'm part of that, obviously, you know, a pretty big part of my book or a significant part of my book is also about that. But I was never, you know, an historian of slavery. And so um, for me, I think one of the kind of – Challenges that I was trying to do as a cultural intellectual historian, rather than let's say a social historian, was really to you know interrogate the very meaning of what that means capitalism. And I think that's something that sometimes historians of capitalism are wary of kind of definitions. But for me, one of the goals of this book was definitely uh, not only to trace you know how we you know have begun to measure everything through money, uh, but also you know I think that in answering that question, I was also trying to get to this really basic core question of what is capitalism? Why is this different uh, than what we had before? And, and you know, why is it that in the early 19th century and even to the mid-19th century, uh, n- very few Americans you know imagined their world as a capitalized investment or, and measured it as such. Uh, so on one hand, I was definitely um, really interested in these questions of, of not, I, I guess this isn't only a question of defining capitalism, there's also a question of transition to capitalism. So uh, Jeff Sklansky has this great uh Uh, article on the intellectual history of capitalism and he makes a great point that he says the new historians of capitalism are less interested in these kind of transition debates you know when did capitalism in america begin and i'm actually really interested in those debates and if you read the first kind of few chapters of my book it's very clear that i'm like you know very influenced by these older debates about you know was the late 18th century capitalist was this cap you know and I, i i make some very kind of um clear like distinctions i try to make so very broadly, for instance, I don't think tobacco slavery in the South was particularly capitalist. I think cotton cl- slavery in the South was super capitalist, so, so things like that. So I guess for me, I, in writing this, I'm very interested in, on one hand, you know, we, I do think we need to kind of take on the challenge of being very specific about the words we use, like capitalism. And on the other hand, um, kind of also like looking at change over time and really trying, you know, because once you can define it or you think you can define it, you're going to make a claim that you can define it, then you can also, you know, begin to create a timeline that says, okay, this is where it more or less began. Obviously, there's not like a specific year, but you can begin to create some kind of historical narrative. And I think that's what historians need to be here for. Uh, If we're going to denaturalize capitalism and show people that it wasn't always there, I think you need to be very clear about when there was capitalism and when there wasn't. And the same thing in many ways, I think, goes for neoliberalism. Um, So I'm shifting now in my new projects to exactly the neoliberal era. And I have to say, I'm still very kind of confused, I guess, about the word neoliberalism. Uh, I often use it. I've written articles with it. I've written articles about, you know, the origins of neoliberalism. Uh, But I am wary that sometimes it's used as just kind of this empty catch-all. So here, too, I think it's really important that we uh, push to kind of really, you know, give a stronger definition of what we mean by that term. And also, I do think we need to have a serious debate. uh, And here's where I'm kind of still on the fence about whether there really is kind of like a neo in neoliberalism. Um, So for instance, in the work I'm doing now, um, I oftentimes like discover that a lot of these ideas that we think of in neoliberalism were invented in like the 1950s. So human capital is a classic example of this. Uh, and there are many other ones. Um, so then I begin to think, well, all right, uh, then, is this re- then was there really this kind of massive schism in the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s? Uh, and again, these are the kind of questions that I'm excited about. These are the kind of questions I like. Uh, questions about, you know, um, when, when was this shift? When did it occur? What was the shift? Was there a shift at all? Uh, in that sense, and the other thing I'll just add about like the questions. One thing that I've begun to do that right now I'm kind of happy with is to talk not about neoliberalism per se, but about neoliberal capitalism. In other words, to make it you know a variety of capitalism, I guess you could say uh, that in a neoliberal form, and and that way I I don't know why I prefer that. I guess maybe it turns neoliberal into an adjective rather than a noun. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but it's something that that uh, that I that I think I like doing. And then I I like playing around with those things. So another example in my book, so I purposely in the title of my book, I use the word capitalization. Um, And one of the reasons I use that is because I really wanted to turn kind of some of the ideas I have of what capitalism is into a verb. I wanted to make it more of a process. I wanted to make more of action and not just this like, you know, reified thing. So in my book, you know, sometimes people are capitalizing things, And they're transforming things into capital or they're imagining things as capital. And and that helps for me kind of make it more of a historical process rather than this big, giant, heavy thing that's like weighing down on all of us, the ism.
0: Yeah. Um, and, And just because, not to return to the definitional question necessarily, but especially as it pertains to the work that you're doing now, what do you mean when you say neoliberal or neoliberalism?
1: Yeah, so I, <laughs> it's a good question. So I mean, I it's okay if
0: it's an open question. That's kind of more interesting, but
1: yeah. So here, okay. So I guess here are some things that I've been beginning to think of. I definitely think that there's um, that neoliberalism is. Uh, so I think you know using terms like market fundamentalism are useful. Uh, some people prefer that term. The problem I have with market fundamentalism is. And this is stuff that like Quince Lobodian and others have showed that, of course, the neoliberal state is a very powerful state. It's very involved. You know, it's not just about markets. It's also about governance. Um, But I guess for me, if I really kind of get down to like at least as far as the intellectual and the culture ideas go, I definitely think that for me, the core of neoliberalism is first and foremost, this kind of hyper-individualism. It's an individualist kind of methodological individualism all the way. It's this world. For for instance, my due project is on the idea of choice and how choice, you know, we always had this idea of choice, of course, you know, and people have always, or not always, but people since the 18th and 19th century have kind of thought of choice and freedom as being, you know, very important. Uh, But one of the things I'm trying to show in my new project is how really like if you look at the 1950s and 1960s, people like did not think that, you know, choosing an option from a menu of options like that was freedom. Like they did not think that at all. Freedom for them was also about security and stability and and and, you know, knowing that at the end of the day, you'll have a job and you'll have a pension and you'll be able to um, uh, take care of your kids, and you'll have health care. Freedom was actually more, in that sense, about security, and it makes sense as coming out of the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, whereas I am struck by how in the 1970s and 1980s, I mean, there is a reason that Milton Friedman calls his famous book from 1980, Free to Choose. I mean, it really, it is striking to me how Americans in the 80s, and really the 90s, uh, by the way, I think the 90s are by far the most neoliberal decade, way more than the 80s. Uh, uh, um, you, you really just see how choice just becomes it's so obvious oh no I have to be able to choose and there's this kind of dynamism that people begin to think about where they always need to move from this job to the other and this from here to there and, and they're really not thinking anymore about in these ideas of like community or security it, it really is kind of there's something definitely about that uh, that kind of I, I'm beginning to see that everywhere I'm beginning to see that in economic models I'm beginning to see that in policy I'm beginning to see that in culture. So right now I'm writing about choose your own adventure books and why they took off in the 80s. Um, so I guess for me, uh, the interesting side of neoliberalism uh, is kind of, uh, and this is kind of like the stuff that uh, Dan Rogers has written about in Age of Fracture, is, it's really, uh, it's, it's less maybe the, the rise in inequality, which I don't necessarily think uh, is specifically that's something that's special to neoliberalism. I think there are many periods in the history of capitalism that have been incredibly unequal, uh, but I do think there's something about you know this the way we're imagining this kind of free flowing market and the way and there's a subjectivity here too. I think it changed the way people looked at themselves that I do see as unique. I, I definitely think that something happened in the 70s and 80s uh, in that sense the way people kind of imagined themselves and their place and, and I guess. At the very end, I could just basically say, you know, people really did begin to imagine themselves living in a market world where they're just kind of floating through like these atomized, you know, maximizing utility, voice rational choice kind of uh, <laughs> uh, automatons.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, I think, really compelling. And I guess I'm wondering, especially um, in the context of the politics that you were talking about earlier, where... Uh, something like, you know, this is the title of one of your chapters, something like morality comes in or something like an ethics or something like a politics, especially because as you pointed out, we do sometimes make assumptions about uh, the relationship between a certain kind of economic thinking and a certain political party or designations like liberal or conservative or left being about economics, and sometimes they are and sometimes they're not, and parsing kind of which ends of the string are tied to which piece of it, I think is part of uh, kind of precisely the decades that you're concerned with. Um, how have you how have you been parsing that sort of jumble in the conversations that you've been having, I guess, about this book, but also about your, your newer work?
1: Yeah, so I, I guess for me, when it comes to the politics, and this goes back to kind of the basic categories that I interrogate, I I've really enjoyed kind of blurring the lines, um, showing that the liberal conservative divide is a very problematic one. And I think one of the things that I dislike most about uh, a lot of 20th century history is that I feel like people are taking the categories of like what they read about in the elections, you know, Democrats versus Republicans or uh uh, even Trump versus Hillary, or I don't know, just kind of these categories, and and then they're kind of foisting them upon uh, the past. When really, uh, and this is kind of what I did with Irving Fisher in my in, in in the Pricing of Progress book, is like I really try to show how a lot of times what's really interesting aren't the necessarily the differences between supposedly the differences between liberal and conservative, but actually like how they're actually speaking in sometimes uh, the same language. Uh, so what what are the shared affinities? So. Someone like Irving Fisher fascinated me because, on one hand, uh, he was pretty right wing as far as he hated unions, he hated the populists. He's one of the architects of monetarism, what would later become Milton Friedman's, you know, basic, most important kind of economic theory. But on the other hand, uh, Irving Fisher really wanted universal health care. He was definitely not laissez-faire. He really believed that uh, government should get involved. Of course, it should be experts like him who do the involving, but still. Um, and so for me that and, – and then also just like the fact that he was pricing everything, that was also something that struck me because – and again, this gets back to kind of what we talked about before about the politics of the book um, – Pricing people, pricing things. This was this this was clearly not just like a right left divide or a right liberal divide. Um, uh, in the 20th century, uh, after the pricing of progress, everyone makes their political arguments uh, by trying to like convince people that this will save money or this will you know increase the economic pie. Or everyone's playing the counting everything with money game. And so for me, it's really important to kind of go back. And just show, and you got you you mentioned morality and ethics, and, and that really is part of it. Just show the the ethical problems of that language uh, on, from both sides of the, I guess you could say, political aisle, and and really show what is lost and what is hidden and what is uh, distorted uh, just from the fact that we're uh, talking in that language. And in many ways, it didn't really matter to me at some points how people were, uh, you know, what were the policies they were advocating for. Uh, in some ways, the minute that they were advocating for those policies, simply in this kind of, you know, we need to maximize monetized productivity, uh, and that's why we should do X, Y, or Z, in many ways, I felt that that was much more important than the policies themselves. Just to give you an example, uh, there are a lot of economists now who think inequality is a problem, uh, but uh, a lot of them think it's a problem because it's bad for growth. They're like, oh, no, actually, it looks like, you know, being highly – so there's really no kind of ethical standard here. They're really not, you know, delving into questions of democracy or freedom or what it means to live in a society, you know, where people are so uh, – where power is so unevenly distributed. They're still in that world of of, you know, GDP maximization. So for me – Okay, I'm glad that you now think inequality is bad, that's good, <laughs> but uh, you really haven't changed all that much. Um, so I guess for me, that's the real challenge. It's to it's not only uh, disrupt and challenge the politics of uh, neoliberalism today, but also just the very language that is used. And, and it's a slippery slope. I think a lot of people oftentimes uh, in challenging you know, uh, the system end up kind of using the language of the system. Um, so I guess that's one of my kind of major goals. Uh, and this also, you mentioned the new book, Choice. I, I see that there too. Um, I think that that the language of, uh, of neoliberalism is never uh, just on one side of the political spectrum. And uh, I guess I'll say one thing just about the politics of like the 70s and 80s that's really interesting. I think about this a lot. I think, so people... I feel like American historians of this period have usually framed kind of the rise of the right or in terms of like the rise of conservatism. That's kind of like the key word that they're using. And, Amer- and many times Americans are actually wary of using the word neoliberal, which I can understand because it's really not the meaning of the word, The word because the word liberal means something else to Americans than it does to Europeans. It becomes very, very confusing, uh, which is true. Um, But to me, like, the problem with this, like, the rise of conservatism is that I I find it as what I call the John Stewartization of uh, American politics, which is, you know, what did John Stewart always do, right? He always just, you know, complained about Fox News, criticized Fox News. It was always about the conservatives. There was never, like, this moment where, like, he would, I mean, maybe a little bit, but hardly ever would he look in the mirror and, like, okay, but what are the liberals doing? And I feel like this whole rise of conservative narrative is very problematic in that regard because uh, uh, if and, and that, that is why I do like sometimes using the word neoliberal because if we use the word neoliberal, then we can talk about Ronald Reagan, but we can also talk about Bill Clinton and we can talk about you know uh, um, the, the conservatives in Orange County who hate paying taxes, but we can also talk about you know the yuppies or even the hipsters uh, maybe in Brooklyn and New York or in the 90s uh, viewing the world in a very kind of, I would argue. Neoliberal way. So, so in that sense, again, it's blurring the lines, kind of trying to challenge the dichotomies that we have. I guess that's kind of one of the goals I always have in my writing.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's both compelling and also allows us to account for the vocabulary that many people use to to describe and diagnose our politics. Um, And I guess following from that, I'm I'm wondering in the blurring. what that does to understandings of, for instance, political conflict or social struggle. And if those, those categories are things that have a place in that story, particularly because, you know, these older traditions that obviously you're very much aware of in, and in conversation with of um, understanding the blurring that's happening in, in places where people make decisions. And so setting up a different kind of dichotomy, right? Not between left and right, but for instance, between, you know, a much older distinction between the ruling classes and everybody else, or the masses, or the working classes, or something like racial capitalism, or something like social Uh reproduction. These other ways of kind of grouping people according to their relationship to producing value, whether it's accounting for the history of chattel slavery, or accounting for the history of feminized labor, these other ways that people have um, grouped, uh, kind of makers and and, and takers, if you will. I'm wondering what that does, especially because a lot of the time, the story of the eighties and nineties that we're telling is about the falling away of many forms of protest and the smoothening out of conflict and and the rise of this kind of technocratic bureaucratic language of how politics are done. But now, of course, as as you, as you've mentioned, all of these kind of Pieces are bubbling back up in um, at least mainstream conversations about the the relationship between politics and morality. Could you could you maybe say something about whether all of that stuff really does fall away in the '90s, as a lot of um, histories of this period have been have been leading us to believe, or or is there a place <laughs> for that kind of like conflict and and struggle and these other technologies for understanding difference in this period?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So first of all, just uh, for the beginning of the question. So if I go, if I look back to my book, my first, uh, so definitely the the, the groupings as you're talking about the struggles, the 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 conflicts. Um, in that sense, are are usually for me class based. Obviously, sometimes uh, there's race involved. I should do more with gender that I actually don't in the first book, simply because uh, I mean I, I definitely talk about. Uh, what it means for women that uh, they, their labor, for instance, is never valued like that of men's because it's not in the market, things like that, which feminist economists have been writing about for years. And I don't think I offer anything new in that regard, but I do kind of touch on that for a few pages. But but definitely for me, kind of the engine of, of the story is always um, these conflicts between uh, uh, elites, I guess. like That's another way. I think that you can kind of separate a liberal historian from a left historian uh, is always always look for words like uh, elites. Um, Liberals oftentimes, uh, at least kind of like the technocratic kind of liberal historians who are writing about these economists, they're very wary to give kind of like a class framing to these economists who are working, whether it's in the Federal Reserve or, uh, or uh, or in, you know, the statistical bureaus. But for me, you know, throughout the book, I make it very clear that there's an important class dynamic going on. And this is something I learned from my advisor, Sven, who wrote, obviously, his first book is on the bourgeoisie. Um, so, uh, so in that sense, you know, uh, kind of capturing how oftentimes these changes are not necessarily happening everywhere. So, you know, the main arc in my first book, in The, in the Pricing of Progress, is about how, you know, people began to uh, measure everything with prices. But throughout the entire book, I make very plain that really this shift is mostly occurring among elites. Uh, the the working class uh, never completely uh, or buy into this idea that you should measure everything with prices and I always make sure in every chapter to show the contestation and the battles and the fights and like how they're very dubious about this uh, but on the other hand I do think also that there's something very real called class power and therefore I don't always you know want to turn it into an agency narrative from below because I feel like in some ways that can have a weird effect of romanticizing the past in ways that we shouldn't. So I think in like the introduction of my book, I say something like, uh, you know, uh, maybe I should write here about how your average normal, you know, working class person, how he kind of measured the world. But the truth is, you know, if you're looking at a history of economic indicators, those working class people, except for a few interesting moments that I talk about, never really had the social power to shape you know, the indicators that are then used by the government to measure what progress is. Like, that just didn't happen. And therefore, to kind of create that bottoms up narrative, that agency narrative, which, by the way, was very big in the 90s and I think has something to do with neoliberalism. <laughs> um, but, like, to create that narrative, sometimes that's really important, that's really great, but sometimes I think that's just, that can be very misleading. It creates kind of like, uh, a kind of a feeling as if the world is just like this even plane where everybody can like influence things at the same rate and that's just not true. Um, so uh, about the 90s, uh, I'm very much like this project is very new, but I'll just say one thing about the 90s that have struck me so far. Uh, besides the far fact that I think it's the most neoliberal decade. Uh, and I do actually think that historians have also been affected. I'm writing an article now about this idea of the market revolution. That was a very popular term amongst historians in the 90s. And I actually think that their framing of the market as like the key kind of turn, as opposed to, let's say, capital accumulation. I definitely think that's actually a neoliberal framing. These people are critical, but th- this is, again, what we were talking about, how sometimes – People use the language that the system uh, has created, even though they're against the system. Um, So I think actually historians were also talking that language. I also think sometimes agency was a little bit too big of a buzzword in the 90s. Um, But just one last thing about the 90s that struck me is that I really feel like of all the decades, it's the one decade that the people living it and the way we think about it now are are there's like a really big divide. Uh, I think more or less. I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive or maybe I'm being silly, but I feel like people living in the 1970s knew that they were going through this like really key transitionary period from the new deal era to this new thing. Obviously they didn't know what it was, but I think they sensed that. Whereas I think people in the nineties or at least, you know, maybe this is just my problem for that. The people I'm looking at, they seem to be really um, thinking things are, good, are great and things are going to get better and this crime, bi- crime bill is, is going to do great things and, and you know, uh, and, and NAFTA is wonderful. And, and, and it's, it's really striking now, if we look back at the 90s, as opposed to people living in it, like how different, uh, 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 I, I, like today, I think most people look back at the 90s and I don't think they see it as, you know, particularly a great decade for, you know, everyday Americans. So I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but there, there's something interesting also about how, I don't know, the difference between how we historicize things and how people kind of live the experience. And for me, the 90s are very interesting in that regard. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that brings us back to the question of transition too, because the extent to which people are aware that they're living through some kind of broader structural change, I think, from what you're saying, seems like it comes out in, A, maybe the tone in which they're relating to one another, but also the things that they think that they can implement and, and get away with are the things that they think that they can succeed at. Um, and and I wonder why that is. Do you, I mean, I know that you've just started on this other project, but do you have a sense in what makes these two moments so different? Because they really do seem to be the, the anchors of conversations about um, whether it's neoliberal capital or uh, some kind of new new era in global politics. The 70s and the 90s really do seem to be key Do you you get a sense of why they seem to be so different for you?
1: Yeah. I guess all I can say about the... So the 70s, I think, are a decade of confusion, and people don't know what to do. Uh, Why is there... I mean, if we look at... I'm an economic... Kind of... History of economic thought. So, like, you know, why are we having inflation and unemployment? This doesn't make any sense. Whereas the 90s, you know, uh, I feel is an era where the real heavy, heavy, heavy costs of neoliberalism... Uh, again, I'm not talking about necessarily African-Americans who are being incarcerated or what's going on in, like, uh, but it's just from, like, more of a kind of mainstream thought kind of experiment. Uh, I think people in the 90s are confident that we have a plan. The plan is the market. It's going to work. This is, this is, this, and I think that's very comforting in a way. I think people, uh, in that sense, there's a, there's, I think it was, um, Daniel Bell once who gave this like you know I remember it was really interesting he talked about what is an ideology and an ideology is when you know you have a problem and you can just like you immediately know how to fix it because uh you know you know every, every everything has a solution when you have an ideology because there's a certain way of looking at things and you can just presto and press a button and out comes uh, the, the solution which will of course be in this case a market-based solution so I think there really was in the sense like a there was a plan, there was a confidence, there was a vision uh, of where to take things. And then when things began to fall apart <laughs> uh, much later, then suddenly, you know, people look back and they're like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> what, what, what was going on? But I guess for me, in that sense, there's a certain confidence in the 90s that people have with neoliberals, which is really striking. Uh, it really is. Um, uh, that, it, it's a confidence, but it's also just, um, so again, I, I'm working on like, the rise of these ideas of choice and choose your own adventure books. And, and so I'm, I've been reading a lot about these kind of literary and media scholar types from the 1990s. And they're talking about this new form of like interactive narratives and the rise of video games and the internet and these hypertexts. And it's just all so optimistic and positive. Like uh, they are not seeing, you know, Mark Zuckerberg that, or, you know, platform capitalism or, or Uber or, or they're, they're not seeing any of that. They, they really do think that there's something incredibly, you know, uh, freeing about these new kind of digital uh, uh, technologies, which, which there is. I'm not saying there isn't, but that that there's just they they very rarely talk about the downside in any of these books. It really is just an incredibly positive kind of worldview. Now, again, of course, I'm talking about, you know, middle class white (laughs) intellectuals at this point. Uh, But still, I I, I do think that there's something kind of striking about that. Mm.
0: And before we wrap up, I, I hate to ask this, but I guess not enough not to ask it. If you had to if you had to do that kind of thing for our moment. Um, do you, I mean, how are we meant to properly diagnose something if we're inside of it? Or do you, do you just not want to address that because you're a historian and not a, not a pundit or something like that? It's okay. No, no, That's your answer.
1: But do you have any insight from what you've been
0: looking uh,
1: at? Yeah. I mean, so the other hat I wear here, uh, I live in Israel, of course. And so the other hat I wear is like as a TV pundit now. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, convince uh, the Israeli people that Trump is not uh, who they think he is. Uh, But that's another discussion. But so I'm definitely very comfortable making broad claims about the present. But I actually think uh, it's very clear we are right now. I think we're at this like, you know, tremendous, you know, moment in history where it could really go either way. And there really isn't a middle right now. I mean, I don't know how uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm too confident again about what I'm seeing. But I definitely think that it's. As an historian, my feeling is, is that uh, the 2016 election might be, you know, the periodization, uh, the next kind of beginning of a new periodization. Uh, And I actually say that in an optimistic way. I actually think that, you know, there's a certain... um, a reaction to trump that is happening that's pushing people in interesting ways mostly liberals in interesting ways um so uh, i always like to kind of imagine you know how we're going to periodize uh, uh, periods uh, and I, I always wonder also you know did people you know in the eras that were living these new periodizations did they realize that they were so did people like you know so i think for instance again neoliberalism like most people you know 1945 to 1973 is you know kind of like the Post war New Deal era, and then 1973 comes along, or 75 or 77, doesn't really matter, and that's when neoliberalism begins. And so I definitely feel in some ways 2016 might be like the new, new date that people will use, uh, uh, but I can't say at all if that's going to be something uh, uh, good or something very dark and very scary. That that I'm not sure yet, but I do feel like we're at a crossroads. And, 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 there, and, and in general, um, as an historian, I feel like when Americans have been at crossroads in the past, they've usually known it uh, in the moment. Uh, I don't think it's something that necessarily only appears in the retrospect. Uh, But again, who knows? We could be talking about neoliberalism, 1973 to 2048. (laughs)
0: Well, on that note, then, um, I just wanted to say, <laughs> as we wrap up, uh, that I've so enjoyed speaking to you, and I, and I really appreciate appreciate your taking the time uh, to to chat with me. And I'll I'll encourage folks to check out Simon Brown's conversation with Professor Cook um, on uh, more of the content of of the first book and and the argument. Uh, if you've if you've enjoyed this one and haven't had a chance to listen to that one, um, so thank you so much. No,
1: oh, this was great. I really enjoyed our conversation.